Hey, everybody. How's it going? Before we get into the episode, uh, which is an amazing episode, and I know you're going to like it, I wanted to give you a little bit of backstory for this episode. Uh, I took a trip to uh, Lenox, Massachusetts, to Tanglewood to interview the whole Boston Symphony Trumpet section. And when Mike said he had some time, I knew he didn't have a lot of time. And so I was very thankful to have the opportunity. So I drove out to his house and his daughter was sleeping inside. And so we actually recorded this outside sitting on his little patio area. And so it was in the direct sunlight. I'm pretty sure I got very sunburned, but you know, we got to suffer for our craft. Um, The reason I tell you that is throughout this episode, you might hear some wind noise or maybe like a lawnmower or some birds or something like that. And um, that's all why you would hear that. Now, that being said, I gave this episode to my mastering guy, Brandon Yoakum. I talk about him every episode and Um, it's very possible that none of those noises are there anymore, which is pretty incredible to me that he has the ability to do that. But just want to make sure you knew and understood why you might hear birds and stuff like that in this episode. Um, Sometimes you got to do the best with what you got. And all that being said, the content from this episode is really amazing. And I would check out the blog post that goes with it, just in case you want to check out any of the links about DCI or ways to get in contact with Mike that we mentioned at the end of the episode. All right, enough of me talking. I hope you enjoy. Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. everybody and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach and on today's episode, I'm sitting here in beautiful, uh, this is not Massachusetts, this is Canaan, New York, uh, which is very, it's pretty close to um, Tanglewood uh, with Mike Martin, third utility Trumpet of the Boston Symphony. I thought it was fourth for a very long time. Oh no, I got that changed as soon as I possibly yeah. could, just so, <laughs> just so people think that I'm I'm worth more than I actually am. That's good. That's good. That's all about appearances. Oh, yeah. Um, Mike has uh, agreed to sit down with me and uh, talk to me for a little while, which is very awesome because one of the things we're going to talk about is how busy Mike is and how he manages to uh, juggle all of the different uh, activities and projects and places that he has to be. I'm kind of in this place myself right now of taking on more and more projects, and so I'd love to get some advice from someone who's done it for a little while. And um, from there, we'll talk about whatever else. He's got a a relative limited amount of time. Usually it's somewhat open-ended, but as I just said, he's got lots of stuff to do. So we'll get as much as we can. Thank you for having me in your home this beautiful day. I appreciate it. Yeah. The weather's been great. And uh, it's, um, it's, we saw each other a few weeks ago at the Northwestern yeah, thing, but before yeah. that, it had been a while. That was so. like two months ago. Yeah. Oh my God. Was it? Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's another, beginning that's another insight into my brain. <laughs> right. Works, exactly. I guess, but, yeah. It feels yeah. like, um, yeah. So I think the best place to start would be if you were able to, if to the best of your ability, catalog as many of the things that you do so we can get an idea of what that is. Sure. Uh, you know, my Starting with Boston, obviously. Yeah. So I, I've been in the Boston Symphony and Boston Pops uh, since 2010. So I, I'm actually, I started at Tanglewood in the summer of 2010. Um, I was there. Oh yeah, that's that was right. my first. That you was were, my first summer. Oh, that's right. You were a fellow. That's yeah. nice. So it was, not, it was uh, the Tanglewood on Parade, right? 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, I thought that was that was your first where we did the eighteen twelve together and stuff. Yeah. No, that was my that was the first eighteen twelve I did as a member of the orchestra. But that, no, I started like right off the bat the very first oh, week. Okay. Um, and then, um, yeah, that was nuts. Wow. So, and this is twenty nineteen, right? Yeah, that was a lifetime ago. Yeah. So ten years. This is my tenth season in the orchestra, which is wild. Um, yeah. Still feels like in a lot of ways I just got here yesterday. But uh, so that's my uh, quote unquote. Uh, full-time gig, I guess you could say. That's the, that's the, um, the, that's, that's my day job, I guess you could say. Uh, uh, (coughs) after that, staying in the music world, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm a composer and arranger. Um, and that's, that's actually gotten to become more than just kind of a side hobby. Um, especially the arranging part. I do a lot uh, of, of, of arrangements and, and stuff for marching bands and, and I, I, I'm associated with Drum Corps International. I'm a brass ranger for the Cavaliers Drum and Bugle Corps, and this is my fourth year in that role. Um, and that seems like it's pretty huge. Like, yeah, it's, all the posts you're making about it on Facebook and stuff, it just seems like it's a really serious... DCI it's, itself has become, I feel like, as high a caliber as thing as possible, right? So it's not like it's uh, you're just doing this for fun. It's like a pretty serious... It's like its yeah. own. It's its own very intense and you know, I guess you could say like relatively small universe, uh, you know, compared to like professional baseball or, 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 or classical music at large or whatever. It's got a, you know, a much smaller following, but incredibly dedicated, you know, I think, um, so, and it's, and the, the level of, of performers that now, uh, participate in drum corps is, is so much higher than it was when I, when I did it 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and that makes it really fun, but also like the, the, the level of creativity, um, necessary and possible that to exercise in that medium, uh, is, is what has always kind of drawn me back to it and, and kept me coming back. So what do you mean by what, how has the creativity changed maybe in the 20 years since you've done it? Yeah. So, so when I marched, um, the last summer that I marched when I marched in Phantom Regiment and I spent two summers, uh, before that marching in my, my father's drum and bugle corps, the spirit of Atlanta. Um, and I actually played on a bugle the first summer I marched and now there are no more bugles. Um, everything, everything used to be pitched in G with G bugles. And now it's, uh, uh every, everyone plays standard kind of band instruments like trumpets and B flat, mellophones and F baritones, tubas. Um, so that, that's one big change from the very first summer that I ever did it. Uh, but the last summer I marched, uh, they had just passed a rule to begin amplifying uh, the mallet instruments in the front ensemble so that they could um, essentially uh, allow for more musical opportunity to be more musical instead of just using like hard mallets to project over brass and all of that. They said, if we can amplify them, then we can actually uh, explore a little bit more musical depth from that portion of, of the ensemble. And eventually uh, what that has, what that kind of gave way to was um, we amplify pretty much everything now. And so when you go and see a drum corps show, you'll, uh, you'll see the instruments and you'll see the performers on the field, but you'll also see an array of speakers for every group, not just like the, the top three or four powerhouse groups, but, uh, there are now 23 world-class drum corps. Uh, every single one of them have, uh, a, a sound system worth tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, the open class cores, which are a little bit smaller, uh, and, t- and typically, uh, can be a little bit younger also have sound systems. Um, and it's, it, it was a pretty contentious, um, uh, addition to the activity. It's, it's, it's DCI has been around, 
um, for about 40 years and drum corps itself has been around for, for 80. Um, and so with that comes a lot of tradition and a lot of, uh, um, I think apprehension about, about new things. And, um, so, but why I would, would you, sorry, um, why would you need to amplify the band? Right. So that, and that was, that was kind of everyone's point initially was like, well, you know why it's not broke. Don't fix it. Um, but it's already pretty, I mean, I've been to a DCI exhibition. I don't think it was like mm-hmm. an actual, I think it was like a touring thing that came to Lincoln, played in the Husker stadium and it was mind blowing a little bit to hear. I don't think, I think like the, there was a bunch of smaller groups, right? And then yeah. maybe Phantom Regiment was there or something. Mm-hmm. And I just, I was, it blew my mind the amount of a blend. I had never really heard anything like that before, uh-huh. but then the kind of sound and yeah. almost the feel, like you can feel it. Right. So if that's the kind of vibe that's going, why would you then would you amplify, amplify that on right. top? And yeah. so, yeah. And so, and, and, and we uh, had a pretty, um, heated debate a couple of years ago we had a there's a rules congress every january in indianapolis during kind of the 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 bottom of the off season i guess you could say um and dci headquarters are in indianapolis and we have a rules congress every year where uh the the educators and the designers and the and the executive directors of all the course get together and we examine the state of the activity and there are rules proposals to change and it's all it's extremely official it's i mean it's uh, it's not just like summer band halftime thing, you know, like this is a, this is an extremely well-run, um, very large organization that, uh, that needs to be checked up on and, and it, and it's designed to be done so by its members. And that's what we do every January. And, um, there have been rules proposals in the past about, uh, about amplification and, and how it's, uh, how it's affected the activity and how it might affect the activity in the future. And, and there are a lot of concerns about that because it means so much to so many people. And it's such an incredible educational outlet for tens of thousands of students. Um, and so, but the, from the artistic side and, and just a sound from the sound perspective, um, the, the biggest thing that I have learned over the last three or four years, especially on the creative side is it's not just about making things louder. It's enhancing what's there. And it gives us the opportunity to use soloists in ways that we've never been able to use before there, there was amplification. So we can put a soloist, um, that for visual purposes really needs to be staged kind of in the back of the field on the, in the corner. Um, but we want to, maybe we want to hear them in a way that's a little bit, a little bit more intimate. So we throw a wireless mic on them and give them a channel on the board. And, and then we can mix that with like an an acoustic ensemble and the front ensemble and electronics with these ridiculous synths. Um, so you're not miking like the band as a whole often. It might be very, just... Yeah, very, very rarely is it, okay. is it just the entire group. But, but the, uh, every group does have... Uh, what what we've uh, what we've dubbed uh, shotgun mics. Um, almost every group uh, has ha- microphones on the front that are on like eight to nine foot poles. Yeah, that are uh, sort of omnidirectional and can pick up a uh, pick up sound in a in a larger space sure, than sure. just a, you know kind of an intimate clip on bell mic. Um, and those are used to those are used to to amplify volume, which. <laughs> to your to your point is like what what are we doing and i i had actually submitted a rules proposal myself 2 years ago because i was i was concerned not about anything i had seen necessarily already i just was worried about where it was heading because like you said like there is a visceral quality to hearing 80 brass players with no amplification whatsoever in your face playing really loud it's like it's it, it's the same to me it's the same thing that 
the, the same emotional place that is impacted by that in your, in your heart or your brain or, or physically in your body is the same reason that people love Mahler. Sure. Typically. Absolutely. The totally reason, agreed. The reason Mahler too is always packed is, is the loud is, is how incredible it is. And it's not loud for two straight hours. There's balance. Otherwise I don't think people would like Mahler, yeah. um, but it's not amplified. It's acoustic. I think there's, when there's no, uh, when there's no barrier um, perceived or otherwise between your ears and, and what you're hearing. And there's no filter and there's, there's no, uh, there's no patch. There's, there's no amplification being routed through speakers. That is t- to me that what makes music, um, live music so captivating and, and incredible. So, yeah. so we're at this, we're at this kind of, I don't want to call it precarious because I think, I think the level of drum corps now is so incredible and it's so entertaining that, uh, the activity is in great shape and I think we're figuring out what the balance is for this whole thing. But, um, but we are, you know, we are, there are groups now that, um, you know, they mic individual players on, on, on different parts and have in-ear monitors and, and, and are able to kind of wash that through an amplification system. And, and, and it creates, uh, it creates a very cool blend and a very cool sound and also comes, brings with it its own, Entire host of problems. Is your mic okay? Yeah. Is, is no, my, it's not okay. Is my table failing? Your mic? Well, I think, I think my the thing is heavy, so yeah. I'm going to mess with my mic for a little bit, and Mike is going to keep entertaining us. Yeah, yeah, no worries. Um, so it's you know it's basically it it comes with its own set of problems to to go that route, and it's obviously carries its own expense. But um, that and I am I am not uh, a staunch opponent of of how how we amplify or who we amplify or how many. Um, uh, but uh, you know, I think there's to your point, like when you, s- I want to maintain the, the integrity of the acoustic brass on ensemble on the field. Cause I think it, I think it provides something that no other medium can. Um, and that marching band very rarely even can because the bands just are younger and, and typically not as big. And the, and the brass players are not quite as, um, not quite as well trained as they are at the DCI level. So it's really kind of the only place where you can get that really visceral, purely acoustic triple forte that just kind of crawls inside your heart and yeah, and, and wake, awakens something very primal. I remember, I remember being there. Exactly. It felt, it, it's just, you could, you could literally feel it. It's one of the few places, and we were in a stadium, right? Yeah. It wasn't even like we like were a in a small venue, room yeah. or something. Right. Yeah, that was one of the most impressive parts. And so that may be to, to this next question I'm going to ask. That might be one answer to this question is sort of learning to blend, learning to play. Right. But one one thing I've felt about DCI for a long time, and it's somewhat ignorant, right? I'm I'm not. I don't know the ins and the outs. I had not seen a DCI show. I didn't know anything. So one of the things I thought to myself was, how is this better than me sitting in my room, like working on the things I want to work on versus learning a show, spending... I feel like you... Do not Do you feel like you have to be a little bit crazy to pay thousands of dollars to like sleep on a gym floor and walk around? A, isn't it like 14-hour days or something crazy like that? They're long days. They're, yeah. yeah, they're long days. So it's it's definitely a thing where you look at it and you're either like, oh, I want to do that, or you're not. Yeah, you, you know, know what I mean, I, though? I think it, yeah, ab- and ab- absolutely. So then for people who are skeptics, skeptics like me, besides maybe learning blend and balance, what mm-hmm. other sort of pros exist in DCI that may, might make it so you could argue, even if you're not sitting at home working on your specific weaknesses as a player, mm-hmm. you can still get an experience or something out of the experience that would make it so you could be like, oh, that was 100% worth it. I'm glad I have that so I can take forward what I learned 
into my right. own practice. Uh, for for me, it was uh, uh, my last summer marching drum corps was the summer after my freshman year of college, and uh, the next summer I was I was uh, doing some professional subbing, and the summer after that I was a fellow at Tangled Music Center. So, and you know, uh, the timeline it was essentially right next to if you, you know, put it on a calendar, it was a year removed from me doing quote unquote, the legit professional orchestral track things, sure. the stock stuff yeah, that yeah. you always do with auditions and festivals. And, um, so I, I, I quote unquote aged myself out of, of drum corps because I, I got to a point where I knew I needed to spend my summers doing things that were going to more finely tune me to, to get my dream job of playing in an orchestra one day. Um, but what drum corps gave me and the reason I, I went back to it after being in college, studying with Charlie and Barbara for an entire year at Northwestern um, was an opportunity to perform in a way that I still have ever felt again. And I've been playing in the BSO for 10 years and have played, we play in symphony hall in in Boston and we play in Carnegie every year. I've played in the music for Ryan at the proms. Uh, I've played in, in Tokyo and, and, and Beijing and, and Shanghai and all of these incredible halls with these and packed houses and great audiences. And it's, uh, and it, it is still uh, maybe, maybe honestly, maybe three times in 10 years, almost 2000 concerts with the BSO. Do I remember something that a performance that was as emotionally and viscerally captivating that as, as any, even, even kind of the worst run through we ever had in a stadium for a drum corps audience, because they're there it's 10 minutes. Uh, there's a, there's a competitive aspect to it because you're competing against these other groups. And so the edge is always there. It's that flame is always going, it's always ignited and the, and the crowds are, are incredible and you're and it's this really difficult physically musically emotionally strenuous thing you're doing for 11 minutes that's all you got is 11 minutes and then the crowd just they it goes they go absolutely nuts for you at the end yeah and, and when you deliver on a moment on a big impact they, they give it up and it's and it's and it's immediate emotional gratification for what you're doing and what you work so hard for and also you know, the guy and the girl on either side of you that you've also been learning the show with all summer, you feel that connection to them and you come off the field and it's, it's, it's an incredible thing to watch a drum corps come off the field after a show and they know whether it was good or bad without having talked to anyone at all. You know, we, we, the, the staff brings them together and we say, okay, what do we think of the show? And they either all hoot and holler and scream and they're like, yeah, it was great. And we're like, yeah, it was, it was great. Or they're like, yeah, we left some stuff out there and wish it was, it's, it's incredible. The connection that you have versus I'll come back to the locker room three out of four nights a week. And me and Tom Siders will be like, man, that felt, that was a great concert. And then you go talk to the violins and they were like, well, that conductor's terrible. Yeah, yeah, was, yeah, what, yeah. A, what an awful rendition. The is, yeah. It's a completely different, yeah. you know? And I think, um, I, I, it's, it's not good, bad or indifferent, but I, I, I think it's, uh, I think that to me is now, especially when I marched, I, th- I think a pedagogically, the activities come so, so far, especially in brass. I mean, you can, uh, I don't, <laughs> I don't know, certainly on the, on the physical side as well, the, the choreography and, and the, the marching requirements of these students today, I don't know that I could actually make a drum corps unless they just said you can be a soloist and stand there and play the whole time. But really, wow. Um, I mean, it's, uh, but the care, like there, every, everyone's very character driven now. You, there's a lot you're asked to do theatrically and, um, the musical productions are far more complicated and, and, and demanding now than they were when I marched. Um, I mean, the, the, the music books that I write are, are much more difficult, uh, 
not just from a technical perspective, but but in terms of the musical maturity we ask of the performers than than what they were when I played. So I would say, um, despite the fact that we, I mean, we do pride ourselves. I pride. I am very proud of our staff at the Cavaliers of of the quality of brass education that our students get. Um, and we do spend, you know, we st- we spend a minimum of of thirty minutes and and sometimes upwards of an hour every day working on simple production and flexibility and articulation. And um, we spend 30 minutes to an hour doing the same things that, that you and I have always done in a practice room for years. Um, and so they, the students get, while it's not isolated individual practice sitting down in a chair, uh, they, they are getting uh, repetition at, uh, ad nauseum on the same kinds of, of exercises that we've always done fundamentally. So the fundamental reinforcement the students get during the summer is at a, an extremely high level while it's a little bit more, uh, you know, it's kind of like shotgun spread. It's like, we're doing, we're doing what we need for, for the specifics of the show. You know, if we triple yeah. tongue in the show, we do a lot of triple tonguing, but, but I think that's kind of how, in my opinion, that's how, um, all progress on an instrument would be made most optimally is related to what you have to do. Right. So like if you're playing something in the BSO and it requires triple tonguing and you like are like, I haven't done triple tonguing in a while, you're probably going to start practicing triple tonguing. I actually think this is a great way to find weaknesses in your playing is to pick a solo or pick something like that and work through it and you start to see where the deficiencies lie. And then you say to yourself, okay, cool. That's like where I should work. If you're unsure maybe of like, well, what's, you know, I don't know what my weaknesses are. I don't know how that would happen to somebody, but if they're unsure, I feel like it's a similar thing though. It's all, a lot of times if it's sort of repertoire driven, we say I'm, I'm weak, I'm lacking here, so I can't play the Jolive, then right. I should work on that. So it sounds pretty yeah, similar. I think, Jolive. yeah, it's interesting. I think it's very similar to how it should be. It is. Yeah, absolutely. And for a lot of the students that don't get the kind of performance experience in their own schools or in their, on, on, in their own bands or orchestras they're playing in, that they do in drum corps, I think it certainly fills in any gaps that were, that might've been there. Yeah. Know? Interesting. Yeah. That's a good point too, to say like, you know, we both went to Northwestern obviously. So we're playing and SWE and stuff like that, which are creating great musical memories for us and stuff. But for people who might not have that to have access to be able to audition for a group, obviously you got to pay X amount of money to do right. it too, but to have access to that kind of thing, which you have said provided you with some of the best musical memories you've ever had in your right. life still to this day. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And I think, uh, <clears throat> then that goes to a larger, a larger portion of the, of this topic that you're, that you're interested in about, about how I do so many things and why I do so many things. And, uh, and that to me is, is what, what drum corps is even with its expense, you know, it's, it's a minimum of kind of 2,500 or $3,000 in dues for these students. But then they, we have camps every month they have to fly to, and then food and, and, and all of uh, all of that stuff. We, they do get fed during the summer, but, um, it's, it, I look back on that now, absolutely in the same way that I look back on anything else I spent money on to like the to, 70 to grand we spent on school, <laughs> on you school know? Yeah. 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 The fact that I just paid my college loans off like four years ago, you know, yeah. um, it, it was, it's an investment and that's, and it's not the, the other great thing about it is, uh, because it, it can be open to, you know, we have, we have performance majors that play with us, um, and Carolina crown and blue devils and, and, Santa Clara Vanguard and Bluecoats have all the just, just incredible players, especially their soloists, but they have performance majors that go and, 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 and they'll leave the drum corps and go on and, and they might play in an orchestra or a military band or a quintet or, or become a teacher somewhere. But, but there are so many more 
so many more students that that come to these drum corps that are not performance majors and are going to go on and have careers in engineering or education or um, or economics or or they'll you know uh, or they'll figure out whatever their career path is, but the investment that they're making in whatever that career path ends up being is still going to yield the same dividends it did for me from a, from a performance perspective in music. I think it's, I think it gives you something that you can always draw on to help yourself stay motivated and inspired. And if, and that's the reason I've stayed connected to the activity is that everyone that I've ever met that has marched drum corps and especially the people that have maybe not stayed directly involved, but are, but are still kind of aware of it and, and, and still are always kind of interested to hear how it's going, uh, are incredibly driven and well-balanced people because it is, it, you there has to be a, a certain crazy to you, I think, to want to do it because we rehearse, you know, we rehearse a minimum of four hours a day and sometimes 12 and it's, it's in the hot sun and, yeah, it's, right. and it, and it can be very long. I'd and probably die. I think you would, you would probably wear, you would wear long sleeves a lot and sweat very often. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> which is almost worse somehow. <laughs> but, uh, but no, I think it's, I think that's, that's why it has continued to grow. Um, you know, where else do you get to play? It's not just kind of a marching band halftime show, which which are also great and, and have their place. But uh, it's it's not just you know playing um, Earth, Wind, and Fire's greatest hits for a, a college football crowd. That's that's mostly paying attention, you know. But that's also still great. Um, it's it's this very much purely artistic and and physical event that. In, uh, at world championships next week in Indianapolis, there are going to be 23,000 people filling up the entire front half of Lucas oil stadium where the Colts play yeah. and every single person there came to see this yeah. and they're going to, and they're going to give it up for, for every core, for every kid. And there, and uh, you know, again, I played at the proms when we're in there and, and Tanglewood, when John Williams comes, there are 10,000 people and it's incredible. And, and the energy is palpable and great. I think the John Williams concerts are maybe some of the closest, that's the closest feeling I've gotten to feeling what I felt in DCI, but it it's this incredibly unifying, very intense, uh, uh, emotional connection. You feel not only to the people you perform with, but to the audience and, and especially the kids that end up not going into music will never get that again. And that, but they'll always have it. And I think that to me has, is what keeps me involved and it keeps everything else in my life a little bit fresher and more balanced is no, sure. is knowing that I have that, I can go to that and, and, and watch these kids experience the same yeah. thing I did. That's, you know, I'm sold, you know, that's such <laughs> yeah. a, it's such a cool thing. I like that. It's not just about having this activity, but certainly one that you believe in cause you've done it, but then sort of the longevity of how it's remained a part of you is what keeps it a part of you, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's, that's like what seems to draw you back and instead of like, they're paying you to do this. Like right. it's like a passion, a labor of love. And then you happen to also get paid right. to do, which are always like the best jobs. Yeah. Right? right. And those are, and that's, and yeah. And that, like, those are the best jobs and it's, it ends up, it ends up not feeling at all like a hobby. It's like something I'm like counting the minutes till I get to go do it again. You know, yeah, like, yeah. um, and it's like, something I, mean, I, I love just as much as I love playing in the BSO in a completely different way. But the other cool thing is, is like watching these kids do what they're doing at such a high level and playing things that like, I have written things for the Cavaliers brass line in the last four years that like, when I look at it, I'm like, I would have to practice, like legitimately practice this for like a couple of days to feel good about it. 
and I'm a I'm a professional trumpet player. These are like 19 year old <laughs> yeah. math majors, you know. Yeah, and, yeah. But to like watch them do that, and to and as an educator myself, when I'm teaching them with uh, with the other the other teachers that are on our staff, like we have to get really creative and, and like. All right. Is, is it, is it overwritten? No, we can do it, but how are we going to get them to do it? Sure. Okay. Then, then, or if it is overwritten as a, as an arranger and a composer, I have to figure out a way to create the same effect without it being so unplayable that it doesn't come across. And then they don't get the competitive credit for it. Cause that's on, and then that's on me. Yeah. So, but as a, but as a trumpet player still trying to get better every single day, I look at what the strategies we have to employ in order to get this this 19 year old kid who's not going to play trumpet anymore after the summer's over maybe um to play this triple tonguing passage on top of the staff in tune with seven other people playing the same part <laughs> you know at at forte or fortissimo yeah <laughs> in a way that that the judge on the field is going to appreciate it and the judge all the way up in the box 100 feet away is going to appreciate it um and i've I, so many times i have uh, i will take a strategy that someone else comes up with or that uh, on the fly, I have to kind of manipulate for them to, to, to be able to, to improve on this, this technically demanding thing. And I, I use it the very next day in the practice room Interesting. To, to play, you know, work on Mahler two off stage or, or some, you know, whatever some extended technique is in the new piece we're yeah, playing. I'm yeah. like, Oh yeah, this, this worked with this, this, this younger amateur player. I'm going to employ that in my own practice Interesting. And with my, with, you know, the, my own strengths and skill set that I have. And, 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 and it, it's, it's incredible. Like the, like the two way street that it can be, you know, I mean, I, I think education and performance generally speaking is always that two way street. Like mm -hmm. you, you make Great. yourself a better player when you teach lessons yeah. and, um, and vice versa. So I, you know, I think it's, I think at the heart of what um, drives me to be involved in so many different things is uh, my parents, first of all, always encourage both, my brother and sister and me to, to never just do one thing to like, like if you're interested in it, we'll make it so you can do it yeah, because, cool. because at the bare, at a bare minimum, you're going to have a level of proficiency in a lot of different things as you get older. So you can enjoy. So I More enjoy thing, playing yeah. tennis or golf or soccer or CrossFit or, or whatever, yeah. you know, uh, but at the same time, it, I think that stuck with me and I'm, I'm ADD. So like, I think those two things combined, um, encourages me to search every possible way I can connect everything to everything else. Yeah. So, so like, and That's I know, so cool. like, I know, I know like in your, in your, in your powerlifting and like, like the etude challenges that you do, like it, it's all part of the same thing. Like, I'm sure there are things while maybe not like, you know, like if you're benching 300 pounds, like maybe that's not, there's not a direct application of that of that skill set or that strength you're building to play Petrushka more easily, but there's the dedication and, uh, strategizing you have to do in order to figure out like, yeah. like how am I going to move this way today? And, uh, or, or how is my technique? Cause as you know, like trumpet playing, like lifting weights is it, all about technique and form. Yeah. It's tech. Yeah. You can, you can muscle your way and ugly your way through it, but, but you'll hit a plateau at some point. Yeah. 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 Like worst Barbara, case. Yeah. yeah. Worst case you hurt yourself, but, <sighs> but, but best case, yeah, you just hit a plateau. So I don't know you if you know up. this, but my, my, this will come out hopefully after this is done. I don't know when this is going to come out, but um, my wife Kathleen and I are writing a book. Oh, very and cool. My, we have two sort of separate things and they, they, they work, I think they work perfectly together. But my side of the book is basically what I've learned about powerlifting progression, like how they, and it's the same. Well, so CrossFit and powerlifting are a little different because CrossFit, 
is is not like progressive in the way that powerlifting is, right? right. CrossFit is like you have a workout of the day, you do yep. that, you work as hard as you possibly can, mm -hmm. and you're just constantly like mentally and physically pushing yourself. Yep. Powerlifting feels like it's like a progressive, like I'm trying to slowly add more and more and exactly. more to a specific thing. So I've taken that and just applied it to what we do. And so I, I, I can now like write work, like programs to learn like a piece of music. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you have like eight or 10 weeks of do this every day. Yeah. Like a, like a, like, and you just follow it. It's just like a regular workout program or a workout of the day. Right. You, like you go in there, you don't have to think about what you're going to do. You don't have to wonder like what exercise should I do? You just look at the thing you're supposed to do. Right. And you just get in the mind frame of like, this is going to suck or I think I can do this. Yeah. And then you get to work. I feel like it makes it, this is part of what I'm interested in because I feel like it's made me so much more of an efficient person to think yeah. about like structuring my time and then what, what I do with that time, even being structured about what I, so like on a macro level or a, yeah, a macro level structuring out like my day maybe. Right. Yeah. And then on a micro level structuring, when I have like a block of this is like work, uh -huh. then structuring, having a way to structure what I'm going to do with that block of time that's work and then practice having a way to structure my practice. Yeah. So my macro and micro are very organized and then efficient. And I don't have to think, I just do whatever it's time to do. I don't know if that's some, a that, strategy you've taken to, well, that's or something like that. What's funny is like, that's, that's what uh, was so attractive about CrossFit to me in the very beginning when I started it, like 11 years ago was uh, before that I was like, a, I would either go to the gym at Northwestern or I would go to LA fitness and be like, well, I guess I'll do chest and back today and then run for 10 minutes on the treadmill and then leave and feel like I'd uh, deep down know that I, I, I yeah. didn't know what I was doing, but you go into a CrossFit and then like all of that's taken away. They're like, here's a methodology that's proven because look at these people who, yeah. who are, who, who are professionals at it. Um, but you don't have to think about anything. Just show up, sweat, work hard, yeah. feel like you want to die for about 10 minutes and then leave and you're done. And I was like, it's an hour. It's, I don't have to think about it. It's great. And, uh, I, I think, what you're talking about, that kind of linear lifting progression in order to get from like, from this plateau to the next one. Like, so you can, so you can add 10 more pounds to your squat. Mm -hmm. It's like, is at, at <clears throat> I think at all levels of, of musical performance, but I think especially as you get better and better and better and better, like, like the, the plateaus become much harder to reach. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's the like, same thing in the gym, right? So if you have someone who's just starting out, a pure beginner, literally doing anything will make them better because their yeah. stimulus is zero. They're going to PR like every day. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Right. right. And so that's the equivalent of a beginner on the trumpet. Like they're going to make a... They're going to make a... Uh, um, sorry, I took my wedding ring off and freaked out. I thought I lost it. Um, they're going to make, yeah, like you said, PRs. It's like, but also on the trumpet or an instrument, say a trumpet player, they hit a C today yeah. and like tomorrow, two days, they might hit a D yeah. and an E, but they will plateau, right? right. They will eventually. Mm -hmm. And so you got to figure out a smarter way to break that plateau and you have to keep, this is one thing I, I admire about Chris. It seems like he's just so methodical about how he progresses. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and he's just so thoughtful and, and, and that's like why it seems like he's potentially like never plateaued because he's just on this path of constant progression. But I imagine at the level that he's at, not just doing anything is not going to make him better. So he has to be, he has to be really thoughtful about the ways that he improves because it's so such minor improvements at this point. And it's all like his own personal or your or my own personal. And so it's like, what do I think I need to get better at? It's all like, yeah, that's what it, what it is. And then... 
how do I demonstrably show myself in a certain amount of time that I can get better? And I also think that changes as you get older. So, or as you get better, right? So when you're at the beginning, you might see a progression from week to week. Mm -hmm. And then as you get older, as an advanced lifter, it might be six months to six months where you'll see that PR year to year, you know? And I think that's an important thing to know that we have to expand our um, progression as we get better, we have to expand the length of time we're willing to accept that something will get better in, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. Well, I think that like what that teaches eventually and what's so directly applicable from like a powerlifting linear progression to working on the Jolive or Petrushka or, uh, or just wanting to get a better lip trill is like you eventually like... <laughs> Like you could not possibly stick with a linear powerlifting program that's going to take 10 weeks if you didn't love going into the gym and just working on that every day. And I think what that fosters is is not just an appreciation for the true fact um, that like the absolutely true 100%, like it takes time to get better at things, which I think is the main reason that that's, that is, it sounds simple to say maybe, but the biggest thing that separates professionals from amateurs is that professionals 100% put the time in every yeah. single day and they, and yeah. they accept it, but also, but beyond that they've accepted it and they understand that, but beyond that uh, they are in love with that process, you know? So like Tiger Woods can go hit um, Tiger Woods, go, he'll go hit 400 balls in three hours and, and he'll only hit a seven iron, you know? And, yeah. and he, because he's in love with that, like the fine tuning it takes to like, to know that he's going to hit the center of the face every single time and, and the complexities of that motion, just like the complexities of, of, of moving a bar in a straight line or, or working on, on downward slurs or whatever it is. Uh, it, like if you have <laughs> it's to, so funny you said that I was talking to Rolf's last night cause I did his interview last oh, night. Yeah. He talked about how I hate playing downward slurs. Yeah. Oh, I hate them. I hate I, I, I used to be so good at them and now I, and I stopped working he, on like, them. He like specifically I, mentioned I downward hate, slurs. I, I hate them. He told, probably told you to tell me about, ask me about it. Dude, it was yeah, not, yeah. I, I hate, it's so, so weird. Funny. Um, but yeah, no, like you, I, it sounds simple, but I think that kind of, uh, that scope and that, that, I think that breadth of commitment over a long period of time to something teaches you how to fall in love with the process. And yeah. And because like, to me, I'm, I, I, I was telling, I was, I was actually talking to the Cavaliers about this last week. I was, I was saying how much, how much more nervous I am in rehearsal with the BSO than I am in a concert, because in a concert, like there are variables that can happen because you can't stop. And like, so, so like in, in, in a lot of ways for me, even though there's an audience of 2000 people, there's less pressure on in that moment, unless we're recording or something, then there is in rehearsal because in rehearsal, like the rehearsal can stop. And if I just did something that I'm not proud of, like there's this awkward moment where I like kind of have to face the music quote unquote with my colleagues versus like, if I play something really well in a rehearsal, like I'm so proud of that. And I get, you know, to get a foot shuffle from, from Ben Wright or, or Tom Siders or, or, or Rolfs or Toby or whoever, like that to me is, more professionally gratifying than, than an, an audience ovation. But it, it also like that again is like part of, we have twice as many rehearsals as concerts most of the time during the year. And like you get to live in that process of, of not just making that program better, but like being able to show off like this over a long period of time, how consistent you can be at all of these different techniques that we have to use in playing yeah, an orchestra, yeah. you know? I think another interesting part too is um, maybe you're, 
when I first started lifting, I did not love lifting. You know what I mean? I, I got it because I was fat, mm-hmm. you know, and I just wanted to like not be fat anymore. And so originally the goal was get a six pack. That was the goal. And as you can see, I'm, I've never, I'm not now, nor have I ever rocked a six pack, but I sort of fell in love with, a, with powerlifting and getting stronger. Yeah. But it started from like making this goal yeah. and saying, I'm going to do that. And then figuring out whatever has to happen to do it. Mm-hmm. And this, I, I can't believe I just segued this beautifully into what I want to talk to you about next. I'm very proud of myself, but <laughs> I'd like to talk to you about two projects in, in particular that you've done. One of them is the Charlie A Challenge. Mm-hmm. And then one of them I heard you talk about on the Brass Junkies, which is that Daphnis and Chloe project you did. Oh yeah, that's right. Um, I, I'd, like to t- I'd like you to talk about both of these things. You don't have to talk about them for a long time, but this is interesting to me because um, both of these things, when I read about what you wrote about the Charlie Challenge and then what I heard, what you said for, to the Brass Junkies, both of them you said you were a better musician on the other side. I'm sure with Charlie A, you were a better player on the other side too, but I don't even know if you said you were a better player. I think you said you were a better musician. Yeah. That's really interesting to me right now at this point in time because I'm I, I'm in this place as a player where I understand how to get better as a player. You just say, I can't triple tongue. Let's go work on triple tonguing. Mm-hmm. But I'm not always sure where... Uh, my growth as a musician can happen. And then I've started to realize recently when I was prepping for the most recent CSO audition mm-hmm. um, that I think I play all the excerpts the way Barbara told me to when I was 21, you know? And yeah. I haven't really considered, do I want to do it differently? Yeah. Am I enough of a musician to make a separate choice that might be equal to Barbara's in terms of why you would do that? Yeah. And then on top of that, is it more, kind of make something more personal? Right. Like that's more me. I don't know. I, I, I And so I'm curious if you want to talk about these two, let's start with Charlie. If you want to talk about these things, it's the same deal, like setting a goal, kind of doing it no matter what, even right. if it's not exactly oh, what you want it to be, like what you learn from this process and kind of uh, ultimately how, what you've taken from that and, and, and how you've grown, yeah. you know what I mean by that? Like yeah, what absolutely. you've taken for the rest of your life. So let's start with Charlie A. Well, yeah. So Josh McClure put the Charlie A challenge together and it was like everyone put in. He few, was second, sorry. He was second yeah. trumpet in St. Louis he, at the time. At, at the time, yeah. And, and then, then he was and principal in Hong Kong for a little. Principal in Hong Kong, yeah, yeah shortly after. Um, and, uh, and trumpet. I think, I think we all had to put in, it was a few hundred dollars, like maybe three or 500 bucks. So it was like a, it was like, you're, you're going to do it. I mean, it was like, you know, you could, you could, make two car payments or uh, it was two car payments worth of this thing that there you were like five of was, you, right? There were five of us. It, it was, was you it was and Carrie, Carrie Josh, Schaefer, Josh McClure, Justin, Justin Bartels. And then, um, in fact, there was one more. Was the fifth one? Well, this yeah. is, I'm, I'm, embar- I'm embarrassed yeah, I, that I can't, couldn't remember, but I, I, it was such an intense, like such an intense time that like you get that everything gets distilled down into the, just the memory of, of having to cram your yeah. Charlie a recording in that at the, at the 11th hour. But the Charlie challenge was, so I, oh, my wife and I had just gotten married and we went on our honeymoon and then I got like, and then I got strep throat and it was like right after the challenge had started. And so I missed like three weeks, like right off the bat. Like I did like one, two, three, and then I missed like three in a row. Um, like didn't submit a recording for those. And I, I like, so you're immediately behind the eight ball. And so, like, sorry, real quick. The challenge itself was just so to the, record one the Charlie. The challenge eight. itself was, yeah. yeah. So, so we played all of them in B flat. You could play them on whatever trumpet you wanted, but you had to play all of them in B flat. Uh, and you recorded one, one a week and you had to submit it by Wednesday night at midnight or whatever it was. Um, and 
yeah. So we, and, and then at the end of the, and then, uh, Josh had, Josh went through like this, just, he put so much work into this. It was incredible. Got like celebrity judges to, to judge anonymously. And we would, we would send Josh the MP3s and then he would, he would rename them and say like contestant one, two, three, four, five. Um, and Barbara judged one. I think Charlie judged one. My brother judged one or two. And then he, but he would also get like string players and woodwind players and percussionists. And we'd get these, the incredibly invaluable insights into these etudes that we all know, you know, like we all know, I think like 12 of them, we all know 12 of <laughs> yeah. them. That was the, uh, that was the other big thing I'll get to later. But, uh, yeah, so, so it was super cool. But, uh, and then at the end of it, uh, at the end of each week, the celebrity judge would announce a winner and say, this is my favorite for these reasons. And here's a runner up, you know, um, and, and Josh kept a tally going. And, and so I, I was, I think, I don't think I won in the first three weeks and then I took three weeks off. So I was like, Oh, for six. And Josh had racked up like four of six. I think Josh and Justin, Josh and Justin wrapped up most of them and Carrie grabbed one. And then, uh, and, uh, so, but after a while, like we got into like the kind of the heart of the book that I'd worked on a lot, which included a lot of fast tonguing and stuff I was pretty good at. And, and then I started, I rattled off a bunch of wins in a row and, um, and then got competitive again towards the end. But then you get like to the back of the book where none of us ever dare go, <laughs> you know? Uh, and, and, yeah. and it start and, and, but the other thing was, is like, it's, it's, it's 36 weeks. I mean, it's that's three quarters of a year. It's, exactly. It's, yeah. it's, it's, yeah, it's literally like the time it takes to, <laughs> to like conceive and give birth to a child right. is how long we spent working on a Charlie etude every week. Yeah, yeah. And once you get into the part of the book where you don't know the etudes, it's every day because you want to win because there's 500 bucks. So it was this brilliant, like just this, this brilliant cauldron of pressure every single week where you wake up and you're like, even if I'm playing like second on Prometheus overture and a, and like Beethoven two this week, I can't just like phone it in ever, you know, like I can't just warm up and then go to work. Like I got to practice every day. Yeah. Um, so, so, but yeah, so by the end of it, yeah, of course, like as a player, you learn how to navigate and, not only are you addressing deficiencies in your playing, but the really cool professional application of it was like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be able to play this. What, what, what number is it? Is it 27? That's literally impossible. Um, I think it's 27 <laughs> that like the, I think I heard a story that the, the, uh, the trumpet professor at the Royal, the Royal conservatory in London has a standing challenge that if you can come in and play Shirley, a 27 note, perfect, he will buy you a Ferrari like in his studio. Oh my gosh. And, but you, but, Is you, it can't, the arpeggio but one? you can't do it. I can't, I, I I'll, I'll send it. Yeah, I'll send yeah. it to you and maybe yeah, you yeah. should, you should post it along yeah. with this one. If I, yeah, I, we'll I, do. I think it's 27, but it is. And, and, uh, I remember talking to my brother about it when I was working on it. He was like, Oh, did you hear about this standing? And I, I don't forget, I forget the professor's name, but, but I've talked to other people who have heard this. Like, I think it's, either Royal College of Music or the Royal Conservatory in London, the trumpet professor there, at some point, it was like on his door. It was like, I will buy you a Ferrari if you can play, because you can't do it, but it's a great, it's a great thing to go for. Anyway, by the end of it, like you're, you're learning how to, I, I can't, I can't play this perfectly, but the, that was the other stipulation of the contest is it has to be one take. Um, and so it was like, how am I, how am I going to beat these other four incredible musicians, incredible trumpet players? What can I offer? And, but also like, how am I going to kind of mask this thing in my playing? That's maybe not as good as that, that they do this one thing, especially if that's all this etude is. Um, and you, so you learn, you learn how to, I don't want to say fake your way through something that you're not great at, but like you learn how to present, present both of that deficiency and also all of your strengths around it in a way that like people, it's still undeniably good, you know? So it, I, I think that's 
on the musician side of it to me coming out of it on the other side, not just as a trumpet player. Uh, like that's, I think I learned how to step up in a crunch and still be great and still like have people listen to something I do, uh, no matter how long I've had to prepare it, um, and say, that guy's, that's a professional trumpet player. That's that, that is truly great. Uh, we can, we can talk about specifics if there are, but did you develop like strategies for learning these things in one week? Like, did you like, I basically, did you increase efficiency out of necessity through practice? Yeah. So like you, I, th- I think there's a lot of time management involved too, like to, to, to your greater question about why my, why I am and why my brain is the way it is where, because it's, because for a lot of those etudes, they're so physically demanding and they're so long, like you can't just, I mean, the strategy is never, should never be to just let's slam through it 10 times and see what we can do. But, um, you know, in solo class, when we were in school, like you learn how to, I think the quickest, the quickest way to learn something is do the ending first. Cause that's when you're going to be the most fatigued. So learn that and practice that when you're fresh and try to get it perfect. And as I, as I say to my students and to the Cavaliers, I was like, let's set our ideal environment. Like if I was fresh, like I'd want it to sound like this and I get it to that place. And then you kind of back up and start to add fatigue into, into it. And then how you're going to, how you're going to, how you're going to manufacture the same, the same perception. Um, but yeah, you get like, I would play through it the first night. So we would submit on Wednesday night. And then if I had the motivation to start practicing the next Charlie to the next day on Thursday, but sometimes Friday morning, uh, I'd play through it, listen. And like, I've, I've, you've, we all have our own preconceptions about like, I'm not good at this. Like for me, if there's downward slurs, I'm like, well, I know I'm not going to be good at that. But also like one thing I always learned from Charlie about recording myself and listening back is he's like, never listen to yourself right after a session you right. know you know what you just did yeah like, yeah like listen tomorrow when you're going to be a little bit more objective so you can say like oh that's not as in tune as i thought it was you know or I, I did have a burr on that note and i don't even remember doing it so you can you can actually come up with an objective plan that's sure. that sure. that is that more thoroughly fills in all the gaps so, so how would you do that when you only had a week to do it right that and that's and that's tough so like eventually it eventually especially for the super tough ones like this is what Josh was great at. Like you're going to sacrifice somewhere. So it's like, do I, if, do I play this really fast, super technically challenging a two that tempo and half of it's going to be garbage or do I sacrifice playing it at tempo and it's all pretty good. And Josh did that a few times for stuff that was like really technically was pushing the envelope and he, and it would be like 10 clicks slower, but it would sound great. And it'd be like, okay, he, and then, and then like you, you zoom out and you're like, okay, what's the per, what's the real purpose of this challenge? It's like, is it to just slam through Charlier's and sure. not really try anymore? Or are we like, are we trying to expand ourselves as players? And that, yeah. and that was, that's what you end up doing is like, okay, yeah, I have a week. I'm not like in for, for number 27 or whatever the mystery impossible etude was like, I remember I went back and found that one, my record, like a month ago, I think just on my hard drive somewhere. And I listened to it and it was, I had recorded it. I couldn't get into the hall that night where, where I did most of my recordings, but I just recorded it in like the second bedroom of this small apartment we had. And, and like, you can hear the air conditioning going and like the yeah, TV yeah. in the other room, Cass was watching TV and, and like the breaks I took, it was like not at all one etude, but it was like the only way I could get through sure, it. Sure. You know what I mean? And that, so, but, but then at the end of the day, like the end of that week, you have this experience, this frame of reference and this, um, this now kind of uh, established physical accomplishment of like, okay, well I, I played through it in one sitting, you know, at the very least. So 
you be, there becomes like this give and take with a challenge like that that is so that is like so pressure cooker yeah ask you no, know I think it's great that's the the weekly challenge that I'm doing right now I'm coming to the end of this project I think but the weekly challenge that I'm doing right now is it's exactly the same thing, one etude per week, and I record it and I put it on Facebook. Yeah. Right. But I let other people choose the etudes, yeah. right? And I got Reynolds, Vern Reynolds, etude number one chosen, which is like quarter notes, atonal quarter notes at 132. And I just remember being like, there's no way. Yeah. But I just thought to myself, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to really go for it. I'm yeah. not going to, because I thought about asking, the dude, what if I played half of it or yeah. what if I played it slower? And I was like, you know what? I'm going to treat this as if I have to like perform this at one right. thirty-two right. next week. And what ended up happening was, is I have like a relative formulaic way that I approach all of these etudes because most of them are within my capability of, of learning in a week. Most of them. Like if it's a brand etude or something, right? But this particular one, I was learning from scratch and I had to figure it out. And so I did the formulaic thing all the way up until the point where I realized I just couldn't think faster than quarter note at a hundred, right? Yeah. I couldn't like physically think about what notes were coming next. So I started playing individual lines uh -huh. faster because I could think for like three bars. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And then I would play those faster, like two times. And then I would go, there's like 17 lines or something. Mm -hmm. And then I would put a whole run together a little bit slower than that, but faster than a hundred. And then I would go and knock up the tempo again. And it forced me to come up with this whole new way yeah. that I had never, ever tried before. But I was like, I have to do this. I have to think right. of something because I can't just play poorly yeah. for Facebook. You <laughs> yeah, know what I mean? Exactly, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the, well, that's the cool thing about your challenge that we didn't have to do is like none of this ever came out into the public. Yeah. Like the five of us heard it and the judge, right, and that was right. it. But like that, but necessity is the mother of invention. Like you're not... Right, and, that and kind that, of accountability has been amazing for my sort of creativity on how I'm going to tackle yeah. some of these problems. And, uh, one of the trumpet fellows this summer, uh, was uh, I, we had a lesson and then we had we had lunch and, and, and um, he was asking about... Uh, the Charlie and Barbara thing. He's like, why? He's like, what? He's like, what is it? What is it that they, that they do that has made so many of their students so successful and have gotten so many jobs and all of that, all of that stuff. And I said, well, it's, well, it's, I said, it's a combination of things. One, I think is the culture they foster is that everyone's really supportive, like competitive, but supportive. Like I want to, I want to play better than you, but I want you to play your best and I want to play better than you. That's exactly what she said in her interview. Yeah. It's like, you want to win because you won, not because the other guy lost. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And um, and that's another. That's a parallel to drum corps that I love too. Is that we 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 preach kind of the same thing. But um, but the other thing is is the other thing to me that makes their studios at Eastman and at Northwestern and at Rice uh, across three decades of teaching, um, kind of the. Uh, I think it's I think it's fair to say from and from the standpoint of taking auditions and winning auditions that they're kind of the standard bearer um, is solo class every week, you know, and it's in the fact that and every I I, I think at all conservatories you have studio class every week, but but it's to me having talked to other teachers and 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 taught myself now and and seen the way that the they've approached solo class, you know, and how different I think their approach is and why it's successful. Like the biggest takeaway I have is, is first of all, everyone plays every week, unless there's a masterclass. Um, and 
you get the list of what you're supposed to do at the beginning of the year, but like you're balancing it with being a student and playing in ensembles. Yeah. And that's a big difference actually, is there's like a topic for each week. It's not like come in and play something. No, it's, but it's this week is an unaccompanied solo. This week is a second movement. This week is, I think that's kind of the same thing as, as what I'm doing. If you're, if you're able to come into solo class and pick whatever you want to play, you might pick something you already know that you just haven't learned. Right. I'll just uh, 10 weeks in a row. I'll, I'll just, I'll, yeah, I'll just, I'll play number 12 in the Charlotte yeah, book. And I mean, that was, that, um, and that was like kind of not me to a T, but I, when I was in school, uh, not that I would have done the least amount possible, but I would have absolutely taken it out if I needed one, right? Yeah, absolutely. If yeah, I was busy or something like that, I wouldn't have been like, let's take this challenge out. I'd have been like, oh, I have an out. This is great. But with that kind of system, there's no out. It's it's if yeah. you are assigned an unaccompanied soul that you don't know, like you said, you're not going to want to stand in front of all these people and sound bad. No, and that and and that's the similarity I feel when I'm playing in rehearsal with my colleagues and wanting to impress them. It was that's the same. I think that is that healthy but still um, nerve wracking environment because I, I get more nervous playing in front of my family than I get, than I get playing in front of strangers in symphony hall, you know, because like, these are people, you, you, people you care about that are in, that are invested in your success. And that I think those two things together, like that, that Charlie and Barbara always fostered a culture of support each other and have a great time and, and hang out and party and, and, but make sure you're better than him. Make sure you're better than her you know, um, and not because they had a bad day. Like you all, you all have to like str- <laughs> butterfly flying yeah, butterfly just it's came like out. the most Berkshire thing ever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, I think that, I th- that like, I think knowing you have to go in this week and like for me, like I would, <laughs> I would sit and you could go whenever you want during solo class, you know, like, so some days like I'd want to go first and get it over with if it's something I felt really great about. Um, or the opposite, if I was like, oh, I just want to get this over with as I didn't, wasn't able to prepare as much. Um, then you, then you'd kind of want to go first, but then, then there's other weeks that like, I, you know, I, I, I'd have to go behind like, like Amy McCabe would play and sound absolutely gorgeous and then matt mucky would play and sound absolutely incredible and then like if they went at the end and i hadn't gone yet and i had to follow them like at there's that professional pressure and expectation of like for yourself like all right i i don't want to let myself down i don't want to let anyone else down i want them to applaud because it was good not because it's the polite thing to do um but also like going back and then it, you can rec- everyone records everything, you know, you can listen to everyone and then like objectively hear yourself back to back with like two incredible players or six or 10. Right, Cause right. everyone, every, and that's the other thing you, that you learn that I think was so brilliant and how they structure their solo classes and, and how they assign what they assign is what you realize. And like what I've learned playing in the BSO, like Tom Rolf's been right. Tom Siders and, and me and Mike Martin are four, completely different trumpet players but all great for different reasons and and as a section we come together and and it works it works really well yeah tom had a beautiful way of saying it he's like you know some principal trumpets call it my section and i was like yeah he's like i would never describe it that way to him it's like you all work together to make this thing work and it seems I mean, I would have loved to try to get all four of you together maybe another time, but just to talk about, it seems like you guys just all get along. You have a great rapport. You have a, a way of making this thing work. And I just think it sounds amazing. You know what I mean? At the end of the day, that has to come into play. 
for the way that you guys blend and you sound and you work. And, and it just seems like that's got to be a big part is that you have such a great rapport with each other. And it's not this antagonistic thing that it sometimes can be. We've all heard those stories yep. of, yeah. So yep. I think that's very cool that um, you, you're drawing, there's even parallels yeah. from learning that at school. And then, yeah. yeah. I, I, and I, I to, have, to have ended up in the section that I ended up in, um, you know, in, in my job, it's like, it is, it is not my role to, to foster uh, the environment or, or culture that the, the Trump section has or, or the brass section or the orchestra. But then at the same time, I, I like, it doesn't surprise me at all that Tom would say that. And it's so gracious of him to say, cause he does do so much leading by the way he plays and how prepared he is and how professional he is. Um, but it's also, yeah, we all feel invested not only in how we sound as a section, but like, you know, like wanting to come to work. Cause it's the, the, the one thing I, the biggest thing I compare what we do, what you and I do for a living playing in an orchestra to is professional baseball players, like 162 games a year practice warm. Then it's, and you know, they travel a lot more than we do, but it's, but it's still like, you know, okay, tomorrow we're playing the twins and the next day we're playing the twins and the next day we're playing the twins. It's like, so we show up and we're like, okay, t tonight we're playing Beethoven five and tomorrow and right, the next right. day. That's true. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, and, and, and even at that level, like some people, you know, I, I think you and I always look to, to players who had jobs like, Oh my God, I can't wait. To, I can't wait to be there and I'll never get tired of it. Just like I'm sure people who look at professional baseball players and they're like, can you imagine making millions and millions of dollars and doing like, it doesn't matter how, it doesn't matter how much money you make. Like I'm convinced for those guys, like there are days they wake up and wish they could be anywhere else Absolutely, than, than yeah. on a baseball field. Yeah. Um, and that's so bizarre and alien to so many people. But like once you're in that kind of lifestyle on something that's performance based, um, where you have to be on every day. Uh, like I, I think the, the environment in which you're working, like ends up playing a bigger factor into how, how good or bad the section sounds as whether you practice hard enough that, that morning or got a good warm up in or play necessarily like perfectly in tune on the, you know, I th right. it's, it, no, the, those dynamics of who you're working with. Yeah. And, and I, yeah. That's hugely important. Like, and I feel, you know, I think there's a reason. And the other thing I told this student, uh, this Tanglewood fellow last week that was asking about it. I said, um, the big, they give out awards, Charlie and Barbara give out awards at the end of every year, like most improved, best high range, best low range, whatever. But the last award the most coveted every year is best section player. It's not best principal. Like it's best section player. Like my brother won it three times. I never won it. And like, it's my, yeah, I, I didn't either. I, I always wanted it. You know, I think, yeah. Ethan, I think Ethan won it. Karen Blisnick won it. Um, and the, and, and the, and the players that win it are incredible players, but they're, but they're also just like such incredible people. And they're the first person you'd want to go to, to play duets with. Or if you're playing principal, on Mahler three, like that's the person you want playing second. Yeah, yeah. And that, and that's, that's the award that like that they pushed. They're like, that's the award you want to win. Like you, you gotta be the best section player because chances of you going somewhere and playing principal are really slim. Like, you know, like you, you like hit the, the 1% sure, thing, sure. you know, which yeah. is awesome, but it's still like that vi environment and vibe. And, and you talked about Chris and I think the reason Chris is so, kind of well-loved everywhere he goes. And like, I know the reason like your reputation in, in Alabama and around is, is so good. And uh, as principal players, especially is like, there's still that environment and that, like that culture of, I want you to feel supported. I want to do whatever I can to make sure that you can play your best, even though you're right. principal trumpet, like that's, that's, uh, and, and 
Tom Rolfs is, is the same way. He'll, you know, he'll turn to us and ask, like, ask about pitch or intonation and, and it'll sound incredible. And we don't really know what to say, but it's just like, that's his nature <laughs> of like, he's like, he's like, help me be better. And I want to make sure I'm not putting you guys in a weird situation. Right. You know, like it, it's so, it, um, I felt like I stepped like right out of, right out of Charlie Barber Northwestern culture into and Vince Chickowitz, you know, like it's where it all started and, yeah, yeah. and, 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 and Tom, Tom was a Vince Chickowitz student. And so I, he and I, he and I talk over bourbon a, a lot about, um, about Vince and about why his Vince's students and why Vince's <laughs> Vince's kind of spiderweb reach is, is so worldwide and, and crosses so many instrumental instrumental lines is I, th- I think like there was all, always that culture with him and same with, with our teachers with Charlie yeah, and Barbara right. that, that you, you want to, <laughs> the way to get the avenue to being the best you can possibly be isn't necessarily just how many hours a day can you practice? And then it's certainly not, I hope the other guy messes up. Right. Like not stepping on other people to get there. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, Okay. So we're going to work. And that will end. So the daftness thing, I was was going to say, we're going to skip that and I'm going (laughs) to encourage people to listen to the brass junkies, podcast i'll link it and stuff like that because you go over it very beautifully and what you learn and stuff like that but um we're past the time that you said you wanted to go so i'm going to try to get two quick two more quick questions in and then we can do it um the first one is uh, i listened to a brass chats podcast with your brother Mm -hmm. and at the end of it there is they're joking around about how you say that you like taught chris everything he knows or whatever and then chris said all joking aside Mike, uh, Mike has just had this unwavering confidence about himself since he was a kid. And he's like, I feel I've learned a lot about confidence and a lot of just how to present like a, 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 an appearance almost. I'm sure you're a confident guy, but like to come off enough that way, um, for people to notice. And I'm curious if that's ever failed, if that, if you've ever been in situations where you feel like you're not as confident as you may either appear to be, and maybe what you may have learned in those situations, cause you seem to be really comfortable in your own skin at this point. So I'm not, I'm not saying that, um, it's not that way or it has ever been that way. Yeah, I'm sure. just curious if there's times where you feel like you've been in a situation where, um, yeah, your confidence has not, uh, matched what it had been or something like that. Maybe what that situation would be, what you've learned from it, things like that. If there's oh, anything. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, that's, a, I mean, I guess a flattering question to be asked, uh, but I, I guess it, it, confidence or the appearance, the perception of confidence, I think is, I mean, that's, that's, it's a complicated I guess it's a complicated issue to discuss from a, in a first person perspective, I suppose, because like I'm in my own brain all the time and I can think of 12, 12 moments in the last 12 hours where I didn't feel as confident as I wanted to, you know, but, uh, but the, I think part of being part of being in a, a, a professional and a performance based career is having to show up and do your thing, no matter how you feel or, or whatever. Um, but I think the other part of it is I'm, it sounds like cliche, maybe a little corny, but like, I'm always, I'm always trying to learn, um, as much as I can about not just anything, but I want to know as much as I can about anything that requires fundamental implementation, implementation of fundamentals in order to be amazing, whether it's trumpet or golf or CrossFit or drum corps, like I, or, 
like blocking and football, something my dad and I talk about all the time. Like, like we both think we would have also been just as happy, like being a linebacker coach or, or, a, or an offensive line coach. Um, because to me, I think, uh, I think having confidence in, in, in being able to, I mean, what is confidence? Like confidence is, is the, the self-assurance that you're going to be able to deliver when you have to. Um, and, and supreme confidence is not, is knowing you can do that without having to know when you're going to have to deliver. Um, and I, that to me, I think that's why I'm in love with anything that involves fundamentals. Um, and that's why I started coaching CrossFit because I love teaching and I love, <laughs> I love getting into the nitty gritty and, and finding the fine details of, of, yeah, I, I, I missed, I missed this power clean because the bar drifted out away to drifted away from me. It was like, well, why did it drift away from you? It was like, well, cause you did, did this, didn't do this with your knees or, or you didn't do this with your grip or what and finding that and figuring that out. And then like, okay, all right, fix that. Cool. Awesome. Like small little victory. Great. Now the next time I go pick up a bar, I'm a little bit more confident that I can do that. Um, but same thing with trumpet, same thing with golf. And I, I, um, the most humble, <laughs> the most humbling experiences I have consistently right now in my life are when I go play qualifiers for like national amateur events with the USGA. So like the U S open or the U S amateur, like next week when I get back from Trump Corps, I have a qualifier for the U S mid amateur. Um, and you have to have a certain level of proficiency. Your handicap has to be low enough to be able to get into these qualifiers at all. So there's like an established kind of, all right, these players are all good, but who's going to be the best. And then you get into this situation and I'm, you're playing with like when I play the U S a U.S. amateur qualifier, I'm literally, I'm 33 and I'm playing with 18 year old kids who like are about to go to Virginia or the university of Georgia to play like they are going to be professional golfers. And, and I'm still trying to beat them, but all they do is golf. And, and that can be extremely humbling to like make a seven on a, on, on this hole where this like kid who, who can't even drink legally for three more years, just birdied or, or whatever. That, like those small instances can be very humbling, but also at the same time to like look at them and see how fundamentally sound these other players are and to know that I have deficiencies there, like that's very humbling. So that drives me to want to like go watch a video or go to the range and, and figure out like, or go take a lesson and, and like figure out what fundamental I need to be working on to get rid of the big miss or to, to make myself more consistent. Yeah, I mean, it's cool because I'm sort of in a similar place, right, where I'm learning that, like, learning is what gives you confidence, basically, yeah. right? Like, if you don't know something, you're not going to have confidence while doing it. And the only thing that's going to fix that is by either trying it and failing and learning or learning, mm-hmm. trying it, failing and learning, right? Yeah. But just being willing to put yourself out there and do it will provide an amount of confidence in and of its own. Mm -hmm. But yeah, if you don't have that fundamental basis of at least improving your fundamentals, you're going to consistently have the same result when trying and failing. So the only thing that's going to make you eventually not fail is improvement, but you don't really know what to improve unless you fail sometimes. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And I, I, like I've, I've, as I've gotten older, um, I think I've gotten a little bit more patient with, uh, and I don't want to say realistic, but I want to say, um, maybe more practical with results I expect in areas of my life I really enjoy, but I'm not, I don't have the time to devote the way I, to get to the level I'd want to be. Yeah, like, yeah, I, right. like I want to be, I don't want to just be a scratch golfer. I want to be like a plus two or a plus three. Like I want to be like, I want, I want to, 
I want to play on tour when I retire when I'm 50, you know, or 60. Yeah. Like that's what I want to do. And and that's uh, but I don't have the time to do that right now. So I look at it and I try to I want to I want to put the pieces together as much as I can so that when I practice, I'm practicing the right thing over and over because like and that's something that Barbara always used to say was like if you're nervous, um chances are you could have prepared a little bit better. Right. Right. Totally like there, agreed, like, yeah. like there are like we can always have nerves, even if we're super prepared, you can still be, I think nerves come from two things. And this all kind of goes back to the confidence thing. Nerves come from two things. One, you're unprepared. Like I show up for a test in math and like I didn't study for the test. Now you're nervous because you're going to fail. Or it comes from being prepared, but being, but caring a lot about what you're about to do. And you don't, yeah. and you don't want to waste the experience of this thing you're about to do that you've invested a lot of time in. Yeah, yeah. Those are, and those are two completely different types of nerves. One is unhealthy and and not sustainable and the other is very healthy and can be used to your advantage once you learn how to focus your how to how to focus yourself in the moment where you have to do it and so what i found the first couple of times i played these qualifiers was i got i was so nervous on the first tee and uh and just like or, or just like an audition like you go into an audition that you're really prepared for and you're like when auditions like are a little bit different because it's like a livelihood thing. And it's like, I, if I win this audition, I have a job There's and I get paid to play the, the trumpet. Side, right. Yeah. With, with the golf thing for me, it's, that's not at all the, the incentive, but it's, it's but you're taking it seriously for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Totally seriously. And it's something I love and want to do and want to get better at. But, but what I, what I began to realize after a few of these, number one, everyone is nervous when they stand on the first tee or when they get to an audition, like for any combination of reasons, but if, but if I can stand there and say, no, you're as prepared as you can be, you're nervous because you care a lot, then I can distill my focus into what is my pre-shot routine. Okay, I'm standing over the ball. And then, and, and, and for golf, like the, the most, the reason, in my opinion, golf is absolutely the hardest sport on the planet is because a golf swing takes about two and a half seconds and you can have 5,000 thoughts go through your head in two right. and a half seconds. And but if, you're just relying on the fundamentals to get you through. Yeah. So you have to like, on the one hand, you either have to block your mind out completely and quiet it. Or if you know you can't do that, which is something I struggle with, Part like I'm so ADD, I, I have a hard time keeping my brain quiet. I have to have one or two fundamentals that I focus on and that's all I think about. And then, you, and then for golf, I can't care about the result. I have to just commit to the process. Yeah. Those two fundamentals, like, yeah. like, like with the driver, like I have to, like, I have to keep my left, like I have to keep my left wrist bowed and I have to, I have to get my chest over the ground. Like those are the two things I think about with the driver and getting the, getting the club into the slot. And if I do that, if I get to that point in the backswing and I've done that, then that, then I'm like, cool victory, whatever happens after this, if it's good as a bonus. Yeah. And then that's when I hit, that's when I hit my best shots. Sure. Sure. And like, the, I think that kind of road mapping that kind of like Barbara would you say like, okay, a bandaid here and a bandaid here to get you through, um, is what I think all professionals who are incredible at, at their jobs do over and over. I think that's what my brother does. I think he has, He's thoroughly prepared and he still gets nervous because he cares, but he has so clear a plan and a roadmap right. to get from yeah. this measure to that measure. So it's never, I think the perception of, of players um, or amateurs and anything who want to become professionals when they watch professionals do their thing and are great at it, it looks like they're not trying. 
you know, they're like, oh, I can't wait to get, I can't wait to get that good. So I don't have to try, you know, right. you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. So I can sound great and not but have to try everything's anymore. Everything's just like balanced and efficient. And it's, so it looks like to be that, it, yeah. but there's still, but yeah. there, but I guarantee you like they're going, he's, he has a plan for everything, yeah, you know, yeah. like, um, and the same thing with golf, like you watch the PGA tour and these guys just stand up to the ball and they're, they hit these incredible shots and, and, and shoot these ridiculously low scores. And, and you look at it and you're like, I can't wait to get that good. So I could just go out and shoot a yeah. 65 one day. But it's once you get out and like you've actually, and you, and you do that and try to put a round together or you play in a concert or you're playing a concerto. And the first time you have real major success with it, you realize like, Oh, I roadmapped every single sure. measure of this piece. Like, and I talked to Rolf about this a little bit yesterday. Um, when I interviewed him, he, he was saying he gets tries to get to a point where he's not thinking that much at all, but there's a considerable amount of work that happens before that point. Yeah. So he's working very hard, pulling everything apart, making sure he understands it. And then I've even heard Chris give this advice too, where once you get there, you just try to forget all that and just play. And yeah. like, hopefully your fundamentals are strong enough and hopefully right. your plan is strong enough that you could just focus on what you want to sound like right. and and play. And and if it doesn't work that way, you can start to see, okay, the hole was here. There was a gap here. I didn't prepare this way or my fundamental failed me here. And then you can start to address, you know, whatever weaknesses you yeah. have. And then that doing that over the course of a very long time will make you better. Yeah. Right. And I think from a pure confidence standpoint of like step stepping into a, a moment, where it's fight or flight um, it, it, and being able to do that and trust that your preparation has been such that, that you can just play and know that it's there. Um, it, it comes from uh, not just practicing a lot, but practicing and being present and, and, and practicing like if you have to play this really difficult triple tonguing passage, it's not just hammering triple tonguing over and over, but it's like, I find when I'm my most successful, I, I put my, I try to put myself in the emotional place. I know I'm going to be in that moment. So you're practicing what you're doing. Right. Exactly. Yeah, like, yeah. like my least, like I've, when I've, I played the Artunian a dozen times with groups and, and there's, I'm not nervous about any part of that concerto except the low in the in the cadenza mm -hmm. because it's just it's been on the face for a while you're playing a lot you're fatigued and for me like i tend to get i i can get tight like when i do that and and that is a moment where you can't be tight you just have to be loose and free and 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 you have to like just send it to the back of the hall and and it, so if if when i practice that that's not what i'm thinking then when I get there in the, in the concert, yeah, you haven't ingrained the thing you want to be, be able to do. It's going to be small again. Like right. I may have played it a hundred times. Great. But if I don't put myself mentally, if I'm not present when I'm doing it and don't put myself in that place mentally and emotionally, yeah. then I'm not doing it. And the same thing for me with golf. And it's the same thing. I like the, the other big thing I love about drum corps is we do 30 to 35 shows a year and we could do 12 amazing shows in a row and the number can just keep going up and keep going up and the crowd loses it. But if we get to the last show on Saturday night in Indianapolis, the one that matters, the biggest one that matters, and we haven't been rehearsing in a way that is preparing us for that specific moment, it doesn't matter that they've done in rehearsal and performance 50 run-throughs of the show. Like they're, the fight or flight thing will kick in. And like you're, if, if you haven't prepared being in that place at that moment, then there's 150 people on the field. The variables are through the roof. Yeah, you know, like that, like the way the, the way 
that kind of that pressure cooker environment also is something I've learned a lot from is like, how do you, because as a, as an educator, that's a big ship to steer. Like it's 150 people, it's 80 brass players. It's, it's 40 color guard members who also are dancing and, and they're spinning equipment and it's, and it's, it's 30 percussionists and there's amplification and they're moving and it's this giant hundred yard canvas. And it's like, how do you control everything? And it's like, it's like, we get, one person can't control everything. Like one person can just control themselves. And that's, that's what makes, that's the other thing that makes DCI incredible to me in the same way that playing an orchestra does. Like we want the performances to be great, but the only thing we can control is like how, yeah. how good do we sound and how well in tune do we play yeah. and keeping yourself present, not just in the performance, but like having practice that way, I, I think is what allows you to have confidence and then, and then supreme confidence in standing in the moment and saying, I'm absolutely ready for this. And like Chris says, or Rolf says, like, I can just play. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm good. I think about it now after having lifted for so long, I think about this stuff purely in terms of stimulus, right? Yeah. What stimulus have you given exactly. your body for a squat or for a snatch or for a clean and jerk, right? Like what stimulus have you given yourself? And if you want to be able to lift a heavy one rep max, but you have not ever one rep max, it makes sense that you wouldn't be good at that. You yeah. might be able to do it a little bit, but to your maximum ability, yeah. probably not. So you're going to have to train in a way that mimics or reflects what your goals are, right? Yep. And so I think about that on the trumpet all the time now. What kind of mental space am I in when I have one shot to do it? Yeah. How do I mimic that when I practice? Yeah. And so I've started just reducing the amount of repetitions I give myself yeah. to improve. I just, yeah. I basically have like on average three. Yeah. And then on that third one, I, so I, I, what I do is I just change the tempo, right? If yeah. I'm like, I can't play this perfectly three times at tempo, yeah. I go, what's yeah. the tempo that I can do yes. it perfectly three times today? Mm -hmm. Not tomorrow, not six weeks from now. Because I also try to think very long term now. Yep. Instead of thinking, I, I got to be able to play this today so I can just coast, right? Right, exactly. I'm Because of how I used to practice. Yeah. Now I think, okay, I haven't played Petrushka in two years and now I'm auditioning for the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. So I got to get this back up to a high level, right? Mm -hmm. But I'm not going to have it today. Right. And so I think to myself, what speed can I play it at that level, right? Where I can control all the variables yep. and I should play that like two or three times. This is, yeah, this is, this is exactly, this is exactly what I, what I talk to my students uh, that, that when I taught at NEC, um, that's exactly what I tell them. It's exactly what I tell my drum corps kids. Like it, if you like, like who's to say like, uh, okay, you want it, you, you want to have like the max amount of confidence you can in the moment so that you can deliver. Like that's what confidence is. We established like I'm going to deliver and you know that it's going to be great. And for it to be great, you need to have practiced it the right way. And yeah, for Petrushka, like I, I, I can't just like sit down on the first try and play it at 108 and it'd be, and it'd be absolutely perfect. Like I, or 116, like I, but I can play it. I can play it perfectly right now if you gave me a trumpet at 92. Right. Like, and, and, but I think finding the patience to make yourself do that for some people is difficult. Like I think, and then well, that's like, where I think having a long-term plan going can back help. To the, yeah. The yeah. linear progression is great. And it's, there's still that moment where you like have to allow yourself to fall in love with that process. Yeah, absolutely. And, and for me, I have to trick myself sometimes, uh, especially with the trumpet. And I just have to say like, what if Stravinsky did write it at 92? Like, what huh. if, like, what if this was it? Like, what if, like, and it, if I'm not going to, if I can't put myself in a place where I'm going to, 
I can't imagine that as a reality, then I then that's going to be hard to find the motivation to to bump the tempo back down that yeah, much. You know? My motivation always now, like it, it's actually, it works perfectly for me. I don't know if it worked for anybody else, but for me, it works perfectly. If I can play it at 108, okay. And I can play it at 54 perfectly. Mm-hmm. I would consider 54 with perfect form to be a PR yeah. over 108 pretty well. Right. And th- right. And so I try to view it as how could I PR every single time I'm at a practice session, yeah. right? Because I've heard that in the gym, right? If when you go to the gym, you should try to PR in something every time you go, mm-hmm. but maybe it's not your big lift. Maybe you did one more bicep curl than yeah, you did yeah. last time, but it's this idea that you can track progression like that. Yeah. And I feel like it's incredibly motivating when you just allow yourself to say, it's okay that I can't play at tempo perfectly right now. Mm-hmm. Let's find out where I can and then let's embrace thinking every time I bump up the tempo, that's a PR. I've progressed. I've made it. I've made myself better. And then eventually, especially through linear progression, as long as the thing is within your wheelhouse fundamentally, yeah. you should be able to progress linearly like just bumping up the tempo. Oftentimes, when something is incredibly difficult, whether it's angular or technical, or like I said, it's with it's not within your wheelhouse. You have mm-hmm. to come up with other strategies like isolating things, playing different rhythms, breaking it down. Those are all strategies we all know. But I think when you write the whole thing out from start to finish before you ever do it, you see that, okay, today is slow, but I will get there. Yeah, that- I, And you can trust the process a little bit more when you see the end result. Before you start, yeah, I want to start. I, I, I really want to start doing that in my own trumpet practice, like the the linear progression thing, because it can be like an orchestral season, especially for a section trumpet player, can be like it. I don't have to do. There's not nothing that I ever show up at work and think like, oh man, I'm nervous about this today. So like, I, I do, I struggle in my own practice with like coming up with what to do. So I love, I love that idea of like the, yeah. like the linear progression and basing it. I'll show you. I'll show you what I do, cycle. and then you can go from there. That'd be you awesome. Want, but, I'd, um, I'd love to see it, but. Okay, I have one more question. Okay. The the last question I always ask people, but I'm not gonna. This isn't gonna be the question I asked you because we kind of covered it. I think in a lot of that DCI stuff. Just why do you think music is relevant? Yeah. You know why should it? You hear that it's dying all the time. You read articles. It's yeah. like the audiences are shrinking. The you know that's all gray hairs and the thing. Right. And I just always ask people, uh, just why do you think it's relevant, and why should it be relevant? But you just spoke so off so much about the community and the connective nature of what Mm -hmm. great performances can do, not only for the people playing, but obviously the way the crowd reacts. Right. And it's just finding a way to do what you do at a high level and letting the music speak for itself. It sounds like that was kind of, I don't mean to put words in your mouth. If you want to elaborate upon that, please do. But yeah, I think that's, I think, I think why music as a whole and particularly classical music, but even beyond that, I think live performance yeah, you spoke about is, live performance. Yeah, is, is I think I think why it's so relevant is is nothing, and the reason like it that ties into the whole like in in drum corps at least the the amplification thing, is is when you see a live performance, and the and and you know that something can go wrong like in and as a performer, I think I'm conscious of that. I think most people are not, but I think part of what makes live performance so captivating and why people go see Justin Timberlake by the hundreds of thousands every month or, or this, or the Alabama symphony or the Chicago symphony or the Rolling Stones, or I saw kiss like three months ago. Nice. And uh, nice. It, it's not, it's not just the going wrong thing. I think, I think there's something about, um, there's something very real about being in the same space at the same moment 
that someone is offering something so intimate that you also like want to see, like if you want to go see Beethoven and you can see it being recreated live in a way that you're not, you don't know exactly how it's going to go because it's not the recording you've always listened to. Right. Um, or I, I also went and saw, I also went and saw tool recently. Um, because I love, I'm like a huge, I'm a huge progressive metal like fan and, and what they do to me is like, it's so incredible. And they, so many of their tunes are a little bit open-ended and how they, how they do them. Even though I've like listened to these albums a hundred times and like haven't expect, I love the way they are on the albums. Like you go up to show up to a live concert and it's like, it's different and you're in the yeah, same, I'm in right. the same space as those guys right now. And I get to, I get to see the choices they're making with their own music or by, or with music that's been written by someone else at an orchestra concert or, or the way kiss wanted to do that thing or, or whatever it is. I think, I think that for that for me is the alluring thing about live music. But I think the reason live music is, is still so captivating to so many people that that's hard to articulate is, is it's that connection with like seeing someone be vulnerable for you, you know, cause that's, yeah, that's, yeah. What, that's what we're doing with live music. Like, oh, that's a like, great way to put that. Yeah. Like you'd like, it's hard. It's really hard to, to be vulnerable on, on a regular basis. And it's the only way we ever grow. Like there's, I saw a great thing on Facebook the other day of, uh, it was like these, these, um, a small dark red circle and then outside of it, a, a slightly lighter red circle and outside of that, a slightly lighter red and slightly lighter red. And it was talking about fear and like this kind of ties into the confidence thing and how we only truly start to grow when we get outside of our comfort zone and allow ourselves to be vulnerable and open to, um, criticism and encouragement from other people. Like, and you, and you, you check your ego at the door and allow yourself to, to fail or, uh, to, to feel something you're not used to feeling. But I, I think so many people struggle with that. And I think the reason live performance of music is, 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 is so captivating is like, whether you're, whether you're going to see common or Renee Fleming, um, like they're putting themselves out there for you, right. you know? And like, so you get to, you get to kind of vicariously grow as a person with them without necessarily having to take the risk of like standing in front of 3000 people and do it. And I think, I think to me, that's why, and people, I don't think it's the first thought people have when they go, when they go see a concert or when they think about live music, you know, um, because there's zero vulnerability in going to a ballet from a musical perspective and going to a ballet and watching the dancers who are putting themselves out there and being completely vulnerable, but you hear a, a CD soundtrack. Right. Right. Um, you know, I think there's a different level of trust there. Um, and I, so I think, I think, yeah, like TLDR, like is, (laughs) I I think there's, I think everyone knows that to grow as a person and certainly an artist, but, but more importantly, as a person, like you, you have to allow yourself to be vulnerable and that when you're at a concert and there's no one looking at you because everyone's looking there and you can be, you can experience the music in whatever way you want without judgment. Um, I think, I, th- I think that's, and having thought about this a lot, that's why people, hmm. I think that's why it's important. Yeah. I th- and I, 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 it's not always, I don't, I don't think it's like a for it's in a forefront of people's minds. Um, and whether or not it's dying, I don't know. I think, I think classical music has for 400 years, um, been more appealing to older people than younger. 
And I, I don't think that's ever going to change. I think our audiences for classical music are largely always going to be a little bit older. Um, but, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I think, you know, I, I, I think there's, there's some music for every person, think, right? Like I think there's something for everybody. You keep like taking I, these pictures saying, just a reminder that the marching arts are dying yeah, right. with a full stadium, right, you know, it's, stadium, yeah. It's just providing, I don't know, if you view it in very much like a capitalistic sense, right? It's just providing a product for the people that want it. Yeah. And finding a way to get it into the hands of people that want it, I think is often the struggle. Not necessarily yeah. that people don't want it. It's like getting people to know that it exists and that that this thing that they may not know that they value does exist. I think that's oftentimes the biggest struggle is yeah. rather than... So I was just curious. I think it's a great... I like the vulnerability thing. I, yeah. I think at all times being vulnerable, it's so hard to do, but the more you do it, the more you realize, like, I've been putting myself out there for, like, a while now, you yeah. know? And being totally vulnerable, and it's just I've only gotten good vibes. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Like, almost... Well, yeah, well, like, with the, I mean, like, with this podcast or with the A2 Challenger, but, like, especially this podcast to, like put your voice out there and to, to not be afraid to, first of all, like call people and be like, Hey, I'll come to you. Can we do this podcast? And then ask all these questions and yeah. then, and then put it all out there for, for mass consumption. Like, as I, like, I can't imagine how much that you've learned and grown. As it's a person amazing. From, yeah. From all of that. It's but amazing. I, I think that's what I think I, I feel super, super fortunate to, to be involved in like five or six different things that all kind of require that for growth. You no. have to put yourself so out there in order to get doing better. It, whether yeah. you want to or not. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. That's cool. Yeah. So, and this is the actual last question I want to ask you. And in, in the same vein of being vulnerable, this is, this is a trumpet, sort of a trumpet related question, sort of. I think trumpet players will care about this more than mm -hmm. most. So if you're not a trumpet player, you can turn it off right now, but you shouldn't. <laughs> um, but this is something I've been curious about for a very, very long time. Um, and then I got it. It was a little confirmed when I listened to your uh, Brass Junkies interview that you were in school. When you were in school, Chris was in Chicago, right? Right. Yeah. So what is that like? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, because you have chosen to play trumpet. Your last name is Martin, right? Like, but you have now at this point is very much established yourself as like, you are Mike Martin. You know what I mean? Like, but I imagine there's an amount of a shadow you possibly felt like you were in with your brother being so successful. Was there pressure to like become something, you know, to be in a professional orchestra? Or did you, were you able to separate yourself and say, whatever happens, happens? You know what I mean? Like, I, yeah, there's certainly yeah, there certainly was that pressure, but um, and and honestly, when when I was in high school, taking lessons and studying with Larry Black, who my brother also studied with, um, <clears throat> Larry, I, especially when I was like a junior in high school and then a senior, and I said I want to go to Northwestern, I want to study with Charlie and Barbara, because this is what I want to do. Every lesson I had with Larry, like at the end of it, he would say are you sure this is what you want to do? And you're not just doing it because your brother did it and is successful. And I was like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. And, and my parents said the same thing. And that's, I think uh, the other reason they, they fostered this environment of like, do everything you want to do because like, we don't feel like you ever have to do anything for any reason other than you want to do it. And I fell in love with the trumpet very separately from Chris. Like when I saw Jurassic park, like that's why I wanted to play the trumpet. Like that's uh, yeah, song. I remember you saying that. Yeah, yeah. I was like, I was like, that's, that was it. And Chris was 18 at the time. So he was in high school and he was a good trumpet player, but he didn't, he didn't sound like Malcolm McNabb, you know, and Tim Morrison playing John Williams. Yeah, like, yeah. So, so it wasn't necessarily, it wasn't just that Chris was doing it when I decided as an eight year old that I, that's what I 
that's what I was. Well, I don't. I didn't know. If, I didn't choose that career path when I was eight because I was eight. But I was you like, knew you want to play the trumpet. I was like, that moves me in a way that nothing else does. Yeah, interesting. And um, so as I got older, and especially I was so my freshman year, Chris was still in Atlanta, and then my sophomore year is when he won the job in Chicago and moved up and started that summer. And I even remember like on AIM on, on AOL Instant Messenger, I I made a away away message right after he called me and told me that he won the job. Um, I was the first person he called, which is, you know, super, any trumpet player would, would salivate at that thought that like Chris Martin calls you to tell you you won the job. And yeah. he, he called me and told me, and I was in my room at, at Foster Walker complex. And, um, uh, I made a Facebook status and literally, or uh, sorry, an away message. And it literally, it said like the shadow grows as long as it can, but I wouldn't have it any other way or something like, yeah, like vague, acknowledging what it is, acknowledging yeah. what it was. And like, but it was also like vaguely like 19 year old angsty or whatever, sure. but like did like a, you know, <laughs> sunglasses emoji face or something like that. But, but like, I was honestly, I think my brother and I are 10 years apart, so we've never fought over anything, you yeah, know? Um, yeah. and we never took auditions together or anything like that. So there was never a direct head to head, um, yeah, I was just curious, mostly from thing. yeah, just mostly from this like yeah. Well, I think well, feeling like I'm the only musician, mm-hmm. not, not musician, right? My, there are musicians in my family. But I'm the only one to do it professionally, yeah. right? So I, there was no there, like, it's just like what I wanted to do, and I know you weren't necessarily following his footsteps in that way, but just yeah, like, did it feel well, like pressure to be like, now I have to win a big job? Well, or, like in college, I I did put I yeah I, I when I got to school. And as you're trying to figure out who you are as a person without realizing that's who you're trying to figure out in, in that, um, very developmental and flawed way. I, when I got to school, I did not have like nearly as healthy an outlook on it. I wanted my brother to be, I I wanted him to win that job. Like it, because I, we both have always wanted the best for each other and the most possible success. And, um, so I've, I, I, whenever, whenever, Bud announced his retirement, and then, and then left the orchestra and they started having auditions. Like I was just waiting. I was like, cause I was like, I was like, he's, he's going to get it. I think cause he, it, I, and I wanted it, but, um, in my mind, I was also, I also compared myself to him constantly 10 years prior when he was in school and he won a job in, uh, he won his job in Philly, like in September after he graduated college but was in the finals for principal in Buffalo at the same time. Like then that had happened in June, I think, or something. And so for me, like when I got to school, I was like, all right, my brother won a job September after he graduated. So I don't want to graduate. Like I want to win a job before I get a degree. Like I'm, and I won't think I'm successful unless I do that. And it, that like, talk about like, talk about like setting yourself up for failure. Like I, if that was the only benchmark I ever made and that, and then, and if I hadn't hit it, I would have given up. I would be miserable. I would be a miserable person, but like the, you're again, the Charlie and Barbara like environment, like you, you slowly get, I, I slowly was molded and, and my thinking changed and became much more healthy and balanced. And, and I realize it's not a race. We're all on, we're all on a similar journey and we're at different places in it and all of that. But, um, I think I, people I've get asked that question a lot about Chris and like, how did it put a lot of pressure on me um, as also being a trumpet player? And my answer typically is, is I felt the opposite. Um, I looked at other people like you um, who come from families that don't have, they're, they're not musicians. Like my father is a band director. My mother sings in the Atlanta symphony chorus and has won Grammys and, um, 
my sister, my sister played the flute through, through high school and, and in college. And, um, and then Chris obviously is who he is. I, I felt like, especially with Chris, like <laughs> I kind of like had the path laid out. It was like, sure, sure. It was like if you, you know, I, I still had to do the work to get to where I am. So in that sense, I knew I could always go to him and especially when he got to Chicago and I was at Northwestern, I could, I could call him or we could go, I could play duets or whatever. Anytime. Yeah, I was wondering and, if and, that was like, it's like pretty cool resource to have in a lot of ways, it's, right? No, yeah. it's, it's, it, it, it really is like, so yeah. to me on the, on like on the flip side of it, like I, because his and my relationship has always been so good yeah, and, yeah. and, and so collaborative now, um, as I've gotten older and we've worked together on, on, in a few different ways. Um, I like the first time I got into Tanglewood, like I, he lived in the South loop and I've like, I think I spent like a week just crashing at his place. Mm. Um, you know, his principal trumpet in the Chicago symphony, like had a pretty nice apartment in Chicago yeah. compared to like whatever I was living in in Northwestern, <laughs> you know? So that was cool too. Like yeah. go to the 25th floor of this high rise condo. Um, but to have the principal trumpet and the CSO listen to you play through a Tanglewood list every night. And, uh, I, you know, like I, I got it to a place where he was like, I don't have any problems with anything you're doing. And then to go play the, play the Tangled audition and get in, yeah, you know, like that, that's how I feel about it is like it. I don't know that I would be as successful if quote unquote successful as I have been in my trumpet life as I would have been without his guidance and example set before me. But, yeah. um, but it, what is, what is funny though, and what I've noticed in recent years, it still never bugs me. Like if people make Chris Martin jokes, but what I've noticed, what I've noticed about, <laughs> especially in the last like three or four years for whatever reason, um, like the people, like, like no one I've ever worked with, like no one like you or anyone I ever even went to school with or in the BSO or, or anywhere else. Um, like no one, no one will make that joke. Like none of those people ever make that joke <laughs> because everyone, everyone gets it. Right. Right. Like, like to, so I, like there's <laughs> there, it, it's funny to me when someone, when someone will make that joke, because then I can immediately just look at that person and be like, Oh, well you just don't get it. Right. Like, yeah. And like, yeah. <laughs> you've, you're like you're not at the risk of sounding, um, whatever way this might sound like winning an orchestral trumpet audition, no matter what the chair is, is, is really hard. Oh and, yeah. Yeah. And, and it's something, I don't know if you feel the same way, but like, I never want to do it again. You know, like I would, if I never oh. had to take another audition, the I, only reason I, I want, want to do it again is to put myself in an uncomfortable position for growth to and make better. That's like yeah. Actually why the only reason I want to do it anymore from this point out, but yeah, yeah I mean, when I was younger, I remember, it's just so funny to me because you could, anyone can clearly understand this narrative I'm about to describe, but when I was younger, the very first thing I ever heard of the Chicago Symphony was the Baron Boyne Mahler 5. Mm -hmm. It might be live. It's got like a green cover on the CD mm -hmm. or whatever. And but it might've been the last Mahler 5 Bud ever played or whatever. And yeah. I had never heard any like major symphonic repertoire. And then I heard that and I was like, what is going on? You know what I mean? Like, who is this trumpet player? And, yeah. and who is this brass? Who is this orchestra really, you know? And from that point, I was like, that'd be pretty cool. And then my sophomore year, my undergrad teacher said to me, 
what do you want to do with your life? I was like, I'd like to play in an orchestra. And he's like, okay. And so we started working hard. I got into Northwestern. And this whole time, I'm thinking to myself, I definitely want to be a principal in a big orchestra, like yeah. Chicago, New York. I think New York was the one, like Barbara asked me at one point, like, where yeah. do you want to be? I think I said New York, right? Because I knew Phil was like, mm-hmm. he was older. I didn't know how long it would be till he retired. I yeah. didn't know it would be so soon. But, um, and then... I sent a tape in for New York and I didn't get it. Right. Yeah. I didn't get in. And then like Chris got the job and I was like, okay, well I can't get that job now, you know? <laughs> and then, well, then Chris is open. I was like, oh my gosh, like here we are. Like I have a shot for my dream job. And it just becomes this really nerve wracking thing yeah. because when it's this far off in the distance, that's my goal. It's fine. But yeah. when you're like right up on top of yeah. this is the thing I said I wanted for my life. Yeah. And now I have my shot. Right. And I didn't advance at either one of them. Right. Yeah. I was like, I just feel I could have walked away and said, oh, I'm never going to like, I'm never going to achieve the things that I thought I was going to achieve. But then realizing too, that possibly speaking, that might not be what I'm supposed to do with my life. You know, I love a big reason I wanted to ask you about just like doing these things is you seem to be the kind of guy that's like, it doesn't matter if I'm a composer. It doesn't matter if I'm an arranger, like I'm going to do these things because I can, and I want to get better and do them. And that's how I feel about the podcast. You know, I'm not a podcaster, but I feel like I've been doing pretty good work and that kind of stuff. And it's just like, I just cared enough to get better at it. I think the comfort in your own skin thing is, is something that it took me a while to uh, maybe admit to myself. Like, and I was the same way in school. Like I, and my brother was, he, in his entire career, he hasn't played principal trumpet for like nine minutes when he was associate principal in Philly for, right. for like two years or three years. Yeah. And then he's been a principal trumpet player ever since like 1990, so 20, 20 years, straight years, sure. he's been playing principal sure. trumpet. And that was my perception of him always. And that's what I want. I was like, I want to play principal. And I was, and I think I was, I, at least at the school slash like playing in civic or freelancing level, I was really good at playing principal trumpet. And that's all we ever practice is first trumpet excerpts sure. anyway. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, and even, and, and to your point about like auditioning for New York, sending a tape and not getting in and then going to Chicago and not advancing. Like I, after I won Boston, uh, I still took like four more auditions and I've just assumed I was like, well, I won Boston. I right. clearly haven't figured out. And I like, I didn't advance in any of them. Right. Like, like I didn't advance. And I, and then after that, I was like, I don't, I, th- I think I can be comfortable doing this. And yeah. I didn't take another audition. Like the last audition I advanced in is the audition I won for Boston. Sure. And I don't, I don't the think same for me. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think like, I don't look at myself in the mirror every day and think that I was a success when I won Boston and now I'm a failure because I didn't right. advance in auditions after that. Because I, first of all, I think audition taking is its own thing. Kind of like test taking. I think, I think to be really good at, you have to be great to be able to, to, to be great at it, but I don't think it, it, necessarily means that because I was not the best audition taker that I'm not a great musician. I mean, I still made finals like 12 times and was runner up a few times and then won Boston. And so I'm totally comfortable in the fact that I got really good at taking auditions, but it's also, it's very like once, especially once you've played an orchestra for a while and you get used to doing that and you get good at doing that, like playing in an audition is a, is a, can be a wildly different thing. And it's, and to prepare for that is, is, is tough. And I look at Ben Wright with like with, amazement because he's he's taken he's taken a couple of auditions since he got here and he like is always he always advances and is always right there at the end for whatever he goes to do because like he like when it comes to when it comes to playing an audition and the way he prepares like he's just it's it's foolproof it's incredible but i think the biggest thing i had to admit to myself 
not even admit because I think that I think the connotation of that is like is is more negative than it should be. Is like I like for me, I contribute to the trumpet section of the Boston Symphony at at a level that is that is very high and makes my colleagues very comfortable and and they they you know miss me when I'm gone. Like that's cool. Like I I'm I'm into that. And that's not something just like the the best section player award that I never won. I feel like I like I try to win that award every day yeah. and like, and that's, and that's cool. But I also, I like for a while, I like kept the drum corps thing, like hush, hush. Like, cause I was like, I don't want, I don't want people in the orchestra to like, look at what I'm doing with this professional marching band thing and be like, be like, well, that's weird or that's nerdy or like, that's a waste of time. Why would you, you're in the BSO. Like, why would you do? And eventually I was like, I was like, who, who gives a shit? Like, it's like, I, I love doing it. And I have enough confidence and faith and belief in myself that, I know what things are, are, are good on their own, but also good for me to grow as a person and a musician that I'm going to make that choice. And then when I got into CrossFit and started coaching, like I was like, oh, I'm not going to tell people I'm coaching. Cause that's like, a, 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 that's against the norm of like uh, all these orchestra people who just like, they just play an orchestra and that's fine for them. Like, that's great. Like they yeah. can be happy doing that, but I can't, I was like, no, I, I need that. And then no, the, the same with the golf thing, you know? So yeah, yeah. at the top of the list is the BSO because like that pays the bills and like, I will, that always comes first and I will always, I will always be play at the highest possible level I can to make sure that, that I am always professional. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but like when it comes to like making sure I'm still growing and, and I don't get to a place in the orchestra where I don't, if I had only done this job for the last 10 years, as great as it is and as great as this orchestra is, I, I, I cannot imagine I would be half the musician and half the person yeah. I am. So all this extra you know? stuff is good for you. So it's good for the BSO, you know, I, I, I yeah. look at it that way. And, and, and Tom and I had this, Tom and I had a, 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 a brief, but, but a great discussion. He, he like, he made a point to talk to me about, cause I just accepted a visiting professor position at the university of Texas at Austin for next year. And he, and he like kind of pulled me aside and was just saying like, he was like, he's like, I think it's actually, I think it's actually really cool that you're doing this because like you're going to take, like what we're, what we've got going on here and you're going to take it to Texas and and like then the BSO brand is getting to Austin, Texas where we never go. You know, and like yeah, and, and right. people are going to get exposed to that and, and and that kind of thing and I mean, but that's like but, so I was actually I didn't even mention that. That was something I was going to talk about, but we can just save it for another time, but yeah. that's just also another thing that on top of everything that you're already doing that you're doing at a high <laughs> yeah. level, you know. So it's yeah. these time management things and that's like kind of what I'm I'm really in, interested in a lot yeah. of this right now because I, the, the, from a time management perspective like we joked about it before while you were getting the microphone set up, but like, I, I, I don't sleep a ton. Um, but I, like when it comes to like arranging for marching bands and drum corps and composing and, uh, the BSO and all of that. And then also, uh, having a four-year-old daughter, like, yeah, right. Just throw that, you know, in the just mix throw that, and, just yeah. that, that little thing in there. Um, it, and, and having the schedule that, that we have where we play concerts and we don't get home that night until 11 PM. Um, like the only time I really have to, to fit other things in that are only um, time intensive, like writing or arranging is from like 11 PM to two or 3 AM, you know? Mm. So um, Cassie's great and, and infinitely patient and will take Nora most mornings because I will have just gone to bed like three or four hours before. Um, and, and that is a, obviously that's, that's an enormous, enormous part of why I'm able to do all the things I'm able to do. But um, I, I think it's also, we, we talked a little bit about like when we're practice, when we practice, I feel like the best practice I ever do is when I'm present and I 
and I'm really just in that moment and just dedicated to that. So like I, if I can budget my day in such a way that I'm able to, I'm able to just be present in this moment, whether that's like, whether that's writing right now or practicing, or if I'm at rehearsal, not being stressed out that I, there's other things I need to be doing. Um, and then the same thing goes for family. Like I don't, I don't want to, the last thing I want to do is like spend time with my family or be hanging out with Nora and be wishing I was getting a, taking care of some other projects, yeah. some, some deadline met or something, you know? Right, so I, yeah. I think, I think that kind of practice in the trumpet has gone a long way towards me being able to stay pretty close to stress-free, even though I've, I have like yeah. 14, 15, 16 hour days. Yeah, yeah. So I think, I think for me, it's like, whatever you're doing, do that thing. Like be completely invested and focused in that moment on that thing. There's and, a book called yeah. wherever you are, there you are. Yeah, it's, yeah. Like, it's like about this, like about presence and stuff, yeah. but it's kind of like, even in that it explains itself. Right. Right. And it, well, and, and or wherever it, you go, there you are. You go, there you are. Yeah. 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 Um, and then, it also has like this parallel to your Petrushka thing. It's like, I could play Petrushka right now. Okay. At 108, or I could play it perfectly at 54. It's like, it's like similarly, like I could be kind of trying to do all of these different things all at once, all the time and do all of them kind of mediocrely. Well, or I could just do one or thing. Just like, yeah, focus one thing at a time. Right, right. And then, and as long as the people, the people around me feel, um, the people closest to me that I love, um, don't ever, uh, feel like they're second, then, then I'm, then I'm, I'm doing the right thing. Sure, sure. And as long as, as long as like, like Nora is always going to be my priority. Um, and as, as long as that is, is happening, then I'm free to be present everywhere else when I go do that. So like, if I go to write for like an hour and a half, I'm not guilty that I'm, that I'm not doing something sure, else. Sure. So I think, I think when it comes to juggling a lot of different things all at once, that being able to, to be present, is, is the biggest reason I think I'm able to accomplish those things or execute a task or, or in an efficient way. Um, but also like everything I do, I feel like is making me better Yeah. somewhere and in, in some really crucial area of my life. So, well, you have given me one hour and 15 minutes more than you said you were going <laughs> to give me. Well, so there we go. I suppose I can uh, let you go to take care of one of those other things you need to be present for. But I, I very much appreciate your time, man. Uh, it's, this was this was great, man. Yeah, no, thank it's you. really really good for me to hear a lot of this stuff. Um, hopefully the the listeners get a lot out of it. Um, if anybody listening wants to get in touch with Mike, he's on Facebook as Michael Martin, and then Playwright Music, I think, on Instagram, right? Instagram, yeah. Are you on Twitter as well? Uh, and and Twitter is Playwright P L A Y W R I T E Music. Yeah, um, Playwright Music. My website is playwrightmusic.com. Also, so so. you can find out all of his stuff. I'll put links to that in the uh, in the blog, at least to the website in the yeah. blog post. Awesome. Uh, if you need to get in touch with me, you can do so at That's Not Spit on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, or you've enjoyed other episodes on the podcast. If you wouldn't mind going to iTunes and leaving a rating and a review, one, either or, whatever you feel like doing, uh, that'd be really awesome because it helps other people find the podcast so they can enjoy it and get a lot out of these episodes as well. I'd like to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering these episodes. Everything sounds really great, and I'm really, really, really appreciative of his work. And most of all, I'd like to thank you for listening. Thanks so much. I hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next time. 